And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. Welcome to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Campbell, and my co-host, Greg Howell, is starting a new semester. So we're getting, giving him just a little bit of a break. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to just share with you a little bit about some neat discoveries in our Adventist past. Some neat discoveries in terms of church records and what we can learn from them. Some of you may be aware that I'm kind of still getting used to my new role in the North American Division, heading up a new department of archives, statistics, and research. And part of that role is to preserve and promote our Adventist past in preserving historical records. It's an important part of our organization. Even from just the most basic legal aspects, we have to have a constitution and bylaws and minutes. That's just uh, on a legal aspect. We have to preserve those kinds of records. And so whether you're a conference or a health institution or a local church congregation, record keeping, hence the record keeper, is a vital aspect of, of our who we are as a church organization and records uh, both the current, what goes on, as well as the past. And what's especially fun is when we can dig into the past and discover some records that at times we didn't know existed. And we have to, of course, acknowledge that sometimes records are destroyed inadvertently, Battle Creek Sanitarium burned to the ground. So we don't have any of those early sanitarium records uh, in Battle Creek. And that's, you know, that's kind of tragic. And there's not much one can do about that when those records are missing. But sometimes you find some records that you think, well, maybe they're out there, but you weren't quite sure. And this past summer, I had the chance to visit uh, Jim Wibberding, Dr. Wibberding, who is our featured guest on the last episode of the Adventist Pilgrimage podcast. And he invited me to go join him with uh, Dr. Herber and his uh, daughter and, and my kids. And we had a, just a, a grand time going out. We looked in cemeteries for some old pioneer tombstones. And so I, I was up for a little bit of an adventure. He said, oh, Dr. Herber at the Adventist Health St. Helena, the Adventist hospital that's there, it would like to give us a tour. So we got to see there's the Eliel Cottage right on the one side of the hospital, which was Ellen White's home, her cottage that she actually owned and for a time lived in, uh, right about the time, well, before she went to Australia, of course. And uh, because after she came back from Australia, she bought the Elmshaven home, which is the famous historic site that a lot of people visit. But there's that small, tiny little cottage that's right up there next to the sanitarium or hospital, I guess you'd say. So Dr. Herber was very gracious. So if you listen to this, a big shout out. Thank you, Dr. Herber, for letting us kind of uh, look around and seeing such an incredible historic site and also let us kind of poke around in the basement and the archives, the stacks of old minutes and things like that, that uh, just to see what's down there and see what we found. And so part of this episode is sharing just a little bit of the fun and joy of what we can learn and discover through 
historical records and, and why these records matter a great deal. And of course, if, if you're not familiar with the St. Helena Sanitarium or Hospital, it really began actually all the way back as the rural health retreat in the 1870s. And Merritt Kellogg, who Dr. Wibberding talked about finding his tombstone in our last episode, Merritt Kellogg, the first Seventh-day Adventist to really proclaim the Adventist message on uh, in the Western United States. Well, he was out there. He was a, a, a creative person. He was uh, not just a, a person that was willing to step out in faith, but he also saw visionary potential for new institutions, including the need for a health institution. And he had some training as a physician. So you have to, and again, you have to kind of put that in context. The 19th century didn't take very much, but he still had that passion for healthful living. And that's an important part of the Adventist health message and Adventist identity. So uh, he was able to collaborate with uh, a couple of other individuals there in the West Coast, early converts, um, uh, Asa Atwood being one of them. And uh, on January, January 23, 1878, uh, Merrick Kellogg became the very first medical superintendent of the rural health retreat. And again, today that's the St. Helena Sanitarium or hospital, or actually technically it's Adventist Health St. Helena, this, this amazing medical center that, that we have. And of course, it's spawned many other uh, medical centers all across the West Coast and around the world, part of, again, this Adventist health message. But what's really cool is they have the old minutes, the record books of that rural health retreat. So it has all these kinds of fun details that and, and little vignettes of, of, of things that just help to provide a little bit of color to Adventist history. So I thought I'd just have a little fun and share with you, uh, our listeners, uh, a, a little bit about these discoveries. Well, first of all, what would it take um, once they built that rural health retreat? There's a small little building there. They built a two-story building, 28 by 72 feet. They actually had that noted in the minutes. And a barn that was 18 by 22 feet. Those were the original buildings of this health retreat. And if you were one of the earliest guests to, to have the privilege to stay there, a standard room was $10 for a week of treatment as well as lodging there. And if you wanted a front room, which had a nice view of the valley, that was an extra $2. And of course, you could save a little bit of money by having double occupancy. And it had a schedule that's, again, listed in the minutes, very detailed as they were sorting all of this out. Breakfast, 7.30 in the morning, dinner, 12.45, and then intriguingly, at 5 p.m., they have what's called lunch. So normally I've always thought of lunch as the middle meal of the day, but they list it as the evening meal. And then there is family worship at 8 o'clock, and patients were told that they were to retire lights out at 9 o'clock with a specific stricture that no loud talking was allowed between the hours of 9 p.m. and 6 a.m., well, Merritt Kellogg, he, he was a, a creative type of person, but he also seemed to be not the easiest person to get along. And so sometimes he would have disagreements and right there in the minutes is his resignation. So he didn't actually stay that long for maybe the first uh, two years or so. 
And then uh, the second medical superintendent, now this actually surprised me, was Dr. E.J. Wagner. This is the young E.J. Wagner. His father, John Harvey Wagner, was one of the stalwart pioneers, had gone to the West Coast, would help to uh, with the establishment of what was the Pacific Press and the Science of the Times worked closely with James White. And eventually, E.J. Wagner will become his associate editor and work closely with A.T. Jones and, and of 1888 fame later on. And so I've always thought about him coming and helping his father. But what I didn't know is that his father was actually very involved in the rural health retreat. And when the opening came up, Merritt Kellogg had left, they needed a young physician. And Dr. E.J. Wagner had gone to Charles Hydropathic Institute in New Jersey with a couple of others, including the famous John Harvey Kellogg. And uh, here he was being asked to actually serve as the second medical superintendent of the sanitarium. Now, a little shout out to my friend Woody Whitten who's written a biography on Wagner and my discussions with him is uh, up until now, everyone's just kind of assumed that E.J. Wagner never actually practiced medicine, but actually medicine was the drawing card that J.H. Wagner, his father used to draw his son out to the West Coast. And of course he will with A.T. Jones and Jan, Jan Loughborough edit the Pacific Health Journal. And so it's actually this link through health and healthful living and the practice of medicine that will become a connecting link between Jones and Wagner and contribute to their uh, famous collaboration together and bringing a message of righteousness by faith and more Christ-centered emphasis within Adventism. So there's these little historical details, even though someone's written this major in-depth biography in Wagner, here we're still finding out some new things of these very early formative years of, of Wagner's life. And there's no really other records of that. And so that was kind of a, a, a glossing over inadvertently. Uh, and just because of a lack of records, so these records hadn't been, uh, had were not really accessible or available, I'm sure when he was doing his biography. So I'm not trying to fault my good friend, Dr. Whitten, but, but just how new sources provide new information. Then from that, as historians, we have to revise how we understand our Adventist past. So we, you know, that, that's just how, how it goes. It's an ongoing journey. It's an ongoing process. Well, uh, all the way at the very charter, the initial charter of the Rural Health Retreat is uh, a proviso for a school or college of literature, of science, of hygiene, and that they could appoint a faculty that would then uh, be able to provide a course of study and re receive and instruct students in the usual branches. So uh, right there from the beginning is a broad charter. Not only is it for um, healing and treatments as a retreat, but also for training and instruction. Now, Healdsburg College nearby will actually be founded specifically as a school for that purpose. But eventually, in due time, the rural health retreat will be sort of like a clinical site where they will train nurses and people will be able to get some practical instruction. So it ends up working out pretty well uh, in the end. Another interesting aspect of the charter, and now this one surprised me, was that not only is it a medical facility, an educational facility, but it was also, and again, this isn't the original charter, a mutual aid society. In other words, there might be children who could become orphans or people that might not be able to pay their bill if they're poor. Should we not allow them to receive medical treatment? What should we do to help them? And so they actually uh, made a plan 
where people could join a sort of uh, very early kind of insurance, health insurance, life insurance kind of premium. So if you were to die or you were to get very sick, everyone in that group would then chip in a few cents and then help cover your medical costs or in the case of, of the parents passing away to help provide some care for an orphan. So again, this mutual aid society. So early kind of maybe social welfare that Adventists were suggesting. Uh, also intriguingly, because of the glass fire that almost burned down the uh, Adventist Health St. Helena and, and certainly did burn down many homes and other buildings tragically in that area, not far away. In fact, it seems just downright amazing that the hospital didn't burn. So praise the Lord. I'm thankful for that. But again, my heart goes out because I had some friends that I personally know that that did lose their homes. And and so my my heart, uh, you know, hurts for them and, and, and all of that. But it's interesting that all the way back to the 1870s, 1880s, a major topic was water or lack thereof, the need for water and prevention or, as they put it, precautions against fire. And so they, in 1887, voted in these minutes that they would procure six dozen fire buckets and hand grenades. Now, I don't think these are the hand grenades you use to blow things up. I think these are some kind of fire mechanism <laughs> uh, that, uh, that is being used somehow to help put out fires and uh, that they would then uh, be organized into a company and they would have fire drills once a month. Also, in uh, going through these minutes, I found out that the sanitarium's first horse that would go up and down the hill all the way down into the valley and, 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 and retrieve patients that were coming up to receive treatment and, and then go back down and carry supplies. The sanitarium's first horse was named Duke. And so, you get, again, you get a little bit of this fun color. Well, back to this water. Water is a big issue. So they actually uh, vote that they will build a 500,000-gallon reservoir with a 75-foot drain um, and that this reservoir would be approximately six feet deep from which they would have a sufficient water supply to help keep a sufficient uh, reserve of water that they could use it for the rural health retreat for, for whatever they might need. Also, I mentioned Ellen White had the Eliel Cottage, but that wasn't the only place. Um, in fact, the original Eliel Cottage that was there, she actually uh, purchased another home that was there and then owned a barn that was nearby. And Ellen White believed in the mission of the Rural Health Retreat. And it's intriguing to me because Ellen White, not only is she telling other people, you need to contribute and help out, she set and led the way through her own example. And so they're in the record of the stock. You can actually see the stock is uh, uh, Ellen White's purchase of 50 shares of stock in the rural health retreat. And of the this recorded in there where she purchased the, a plot nearby to help buy some of the land and raise funds. And so Ellen White's personally helping to, to raise capital for this institution and supporting it in a very tangible kind of way. Uh, Ellen would Ellen White would keep that uh, property while she was over in Europe and she would eventually rent it out. Now, this is in, uh, very interesting because I poked around not only in the uh, hospital record books, but I went over to the Pacific Union College, the 
successor to the Healdsburg College. And in their record books, I found, this was amazing to me, the original financial records of the Healdsburg College. And in those records, there's different accounts. So any of the people that work there, uh, they would, they'd have an account, sort of like the local bank. You wouldn't go all the way down. You'd, you'd keep your money in the, in the safe and it would function kind of like a bank. And, and so you would draw upon it if you needed to or you'd deposit things. So if you had your check or your salary, that would be deposited in there. And in the original Healdsburg College financial record books, I was turning through the pages, is a big page, actually two pages, saying Mrs. E.G. White. So, and by the way, there's pages for A.T. Jones and uh, E.J. Wagner and a whole bunch of other famous Adventist luminaries. But this was pretty exciting to me. You can actually see there's Ellen White's financial records. And this may be the best example that I know of, of Ellen White's finances. Uh, and, and again, these finances are specifically from the early 1880s when she was very, she was living in California before she goes to Europe, but but we have an actual snapshot of Ellen White's finances. And so if you look at that, you will see listed on there everything from supplies to improvements to uh, a receipt from Pacific Press, where she obviously got some royalties. Uh, you see one of her helpers, Mae Walling, who um, she's helping to pay her assistants, in this case, her niece, who's working for her, helping as a as a literary assistant and helping uh, in that kind of capacity. And interestingly enough, Ellen White is also helping to provide tuition and scholarships for some of the students who are there at the college, including her own niece as well. She wants to make sure not only is she working for her, uh, but both her and other worthy students that uh, there is recorded for us. And, and this is not something, you know, this is why record books are so in, important because there have been critics of the church that have said, oh, Ellen White's trying to live large on the church and make money off of Adventists. And so she was very disingenuous. But, but here we actually have a very good uh, re record and, and this would have been kept by the college. So this wasn't Ellen White trying to secretly hide some kind of financial records here. These, these are just been uh, captain with many other records. And so here they are. And we have now a good evidence. And, and she made contributions to the church as well. So she wasn't just telling people, hey, you need to give, but she's setting and leading by example, both with tuition. And there's a record where she, here she's giving some money to the local SDA church. So she's paying her, her tithes and offerings. And um, you can see in that list where there's groceries, and, and things like that, college supplies, uh, imagine some stationery. There's even one instance where some furniture, apparently she wanted a piece of furniture, so she bought some furniture. So now, thankfully to these records, both at the hospital and at the college, we have this window into Ellen Wines. Of course, she's passionate about Adventist education. She's passionate about uh, health reform in health institutions. And uh, interestingly, Ellen White uh, hosted the board and attended board meetings on a, on a, when she was around. And so and, 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 and on a couple of occasions where she actually had the board meet with her in, in, in her home. So she's she's uh, very engaged. She's involved. I had always heard, well, the only board that Ellen White ever served on was 
at the end of her life uh, with Oakwood or Madison. But here early on, you know, 30, 40 years earlier is Ellen White participating with uh, the board. Uh, and, and this actually creates a little bit of interesting background because uh, I helped, had the privilege to assist with the Ellen White Encyclopedia about 20 years ago. And as I was preparing the some of the bio, biographical articles, and I was a grad student when I started out on the project, so I wrote a bunch of the articles of biographies other people didn't want to write. One of those was uh, a person by the name of W.P. Burke, who turns out to be a physician. And there's another physician, Dr. J.S. Gibbs. And there's this fierce power struggle going on. And I had read all of Ellen White's letters, but sometimes if you don't have the historical context, you don't necessarily... Uh, understand what is going on. And, and in those uh, in minutes, we have a little bit more of the historical context. And uh, eventually, uh, in those minutes, it actually states that Dr. Burke will resign from employment with the institution uh, because of his, uh, Ellen White's admonitions towards him. And, and he found this um, to be just too problematic. And so, in fact, he even admits this, and I quote from the minutes, he admitted that the controversy was not between him and the board, the board of trustees of the Rural Health Retreat, or even Dr. Gibbs, but between him and Sister White. Now, uh, eventually, eventually, there'll be uh, kind of the rest of the story that will go on because he will uh, come back and have a sort of confession. And again, that's in the minutes too. Um, as he is trying to work out, and Ellen White, uh, I, I don't want to do injustice, but to kind of summarize a little bit, Ellen White's concerned about some of the interpersonal relationships that are going on. She's also concerned about uh, the focus on making money instead of ministry and, and how some of the people had voted themselves these large salaries. And again, the minutes show how they had voted themselves uh, these increases, actually sometimes large increases in their salary. So Ellen White was all about the mission, the mission of an institution like this. And so uh, Dr. Burke um, kind of had this, this, this power struggle. And, and at one point he ends up resigning and then uh, subsequently repenting. Um, he actually will uh, resign a second time later on. Again, that's in the minutes. And again, um, this this kind of back and forth uh, uh, that's going on. Other interesting little details that show up in the minutes are discussions about things like uh, Abram LaRue and in the uh, record books is an actual stock certificate for Abram LaRue, but since he was already, he had left as a missionary, self-supporting missionary, selling health foods in uh, his dream was to go to China. So they told him, the general conference leader said, you're too old to go, but maybe you could go to one of the islands in the Pacific. So he kind of compromised in his mind. He just said, I'll ask for forgiveness. I'll go to Hong Kong. It's kind of an island. So I technically, or he technically met the requirements of church leaders, but then he's right off the coast of China and he's fulfilling his dream of doing missionary work in China. And uh, so he, he had bought stock before he left, sent a contribution to help the rural health retreat. I guess they didn't know where to send it to him. And of course, eventually he will uh, pass away. And so they, that, that stock certificate of Abram LaRue is right there uh, with, the, with the minutes and the other records uh, that are there. And on July 5, 1888, the board of the rural health retreat actually vote to send 
25 pounds of their number two graham crackers. They started a health food business to help support Abram LaRue with his missionary work. And so I just think that it's such a neat touch of how you have early Adventists like Abram LaRue, an early convert uh, there in California. You know, amazing story. You should read about it. You can read the uh, Adventist Encyclopedia article if you'd like to get a little bit more of his story. But uh, uh, here they are now blessing him, trying to support the mission of the church. So missions, supporting missions, facilitating and, and moving onward uh, the work of the church. Uh, and uh, another interesting detail in the minutes, July 30, 1888, the board says, let's investigate getting a post office. But they finally decide, well, they'll be forced to have to deliver mail on Sabbath. And that's not really going to work with our whole conviction about the Seventh-day Sabbath and Sabbath sacredness. So they eventually decide not to do that. Well, there's all kinds of interesting details uh, that could be found in here. They eventually will. Oh, another here. This is kind of fun is to install electricity. That was in early 1892, that they will then have electricity so that they can have lighting, which uh, was a good thing. They didn't have to have these uh, lamps, oil lamps, and, and so that was less of a fire risk. And, of course, there will be expansions. Um, they will build a chapel, then a church, and they will have a chaplain. One of the earliest Adventist chaplains was S. Rogers. Uh, followed by John Fulton, who, of course, will go on to be a uh, prominent missionary and administrator in Asia and Australia. And then another name, what, the third chaplain of, of the rural health retreat was John Burden. He will make a cameo appearance about a decade later when he will read Ellen White's counsels and start a school and sanitarium in Southern California Today, we call it Loma Linda University and Medical Center. So all kinds of interesting intersects as people are uh, from different places working together. Sometimes they always get along. And again, you can see that in the minutes when people resign or have different issues. But you, you get a kind of a, a, a authentic kind of look. Here is the reality of these early church leaders. They're trying to make a way. They're trying to find uh, ways to move forward. And, and by the way, uh, one more little detail is, is sometimes the board didn't always do what Ellen White wanted, right? So Ellen White goes over to Europe and she wants to sell her property that she has. And um, the deal that Ellen White proposes was not satisfactory to the leaders. And so they tell Ellen White no. And uh, Ellen White holds on to the property. She will eventually sell it. Uh, but uh, at that point, that wasn't. So they didn't feel beholden to Ellen White. They felt uh, obviously quite comfortable saying, you know, hey, Sister White, that's that's not kind of what we're interested in. And uh, thanks, but no thanks. And uh, Ellen White would hold on to that. Uh, and of course, James White wasn't around by that time. He had passed away in 1881. But uh, Ellen White would keep that property and it'd be a rental property for a while. And again, I, thanks to those other record books I was able to find, she's using some of that income, again, not to live large on the church uh, or anything like that, but she's actually using it for scholarships, using it to help advance missionary causes that she believes so passionately about. So everything from snapshots into the life and finances of Ellen White to interpersonal relationships between the early positions to little details of the name of the horse that was carrying patients up to the sanitarium. Minutes matter. They matter a great deal. And so I would just encourage you, if you're listening, I don't know if you have 
your local church, and you might have some early records or documentation, hold on to those things. Make sure that they're preserved. Don't just throw them away. I can't tell you how heartbroken I've been. Many times people told me, oh, I just, we had these old records and nobody wanted them, so we just tossed them. Don't do that. Keep them for historical posterity for historical purposes. You just never know when some of those old historical records might shine some fascinating vignettes into our Adventist past and provide uh, windows that help us to better appreciate that nuance, the historical nuance that uh, every historian wants to uh, dive in a little bit deeper. Part of being a historian is, is being kind of like a detective. You, you have to, you can only write and research based on the evidence that you're able to find. So when you can find this evidence, this research, this materials, records that show up, uh, I tell you, uh, this Adventist historian's heart skipped a beat. I was just so excited and thrilled. So thanks for joining for this uh, episode of the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. And uh, we're just continuing on looking at all kinds of different things from interviews, from Adventist historians to new historical discoveries. And so we want to invite you to keep on listening and uh, keep studying, keep learning about our Adventist past together. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month for another episode of the Adventist Pilgrimage podcast. And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. He does not take us out of this world if he does not want us to be contaminated by it. 